Let's get to our message today from Colossians 1, verses 1 to 2. And I can't tell you how happy I am to finally get back to just preaching verses. So, uh, the Word of God reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you are and all that you're doing and your desire for us to grow in you. We thank you, God, that you don't want us to be stagnant, that status quo somehow, some way, it doesn't fit anywhere in the kingdom, but you want us to grow. And we thank you, Father, for all these opportunities we can grow. Grow us today by this message. Help us to know you, see you, encounter you so that we could live to honor you and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as I begin this message, I want to recap the situation of the letter, of this letter of Colossians and what's going on that caused Paul to write this letter to the Colossian people. You know, Paul, if I didn't mention it, he's actually in prison. He wrote this letter when he was in prison. And as a matter of fact, he's never visited the city of Colossae. He's never been to the Colossian church. So why is he writing this letter to these people that he may have never met? And this is how it came about. You know, when he and Timothy were preaching the gospel in a city nearby called Ephesus, there was a city called Ephesus, there was this guy named Epaphras, or Epaphras, I'm going to say Epaphras, and he became a Christian. After hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, he became a Christian. And he, his life was utterly transformed, and he realized how awesome Jesus was that he said, hey man, I want to take this gospel of Jesus Christ back to my hometown, which is Colossae. Right? So he took the gospel back to his hometown and started preaching himself. He started this church in Colossae, which became the Colossian church. But the thing is, Epaphras, or, or Epaphras, you know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't travel around with Jesus you know, he wasn't like a full-fledged apostle. He wasn't personally trained by Jesus himself. So he didn't have the wisdom or the skills that maybe the, all the other apostles did. So when challenges in the Colossians church came up, what was he going to do? He didn't know what to do. So he wrote a letter to Paul. He said, Paul, hey, man, there's all these challenges that I'm facing. Can you help me out? And in response to that letter that, you know, Epaphras wrote to Paul, Paul writes this letter of Colossians. So what were some of those challenges that Epaphras encountered in the Colossian church? We, we covered that last week, but I'll briefly cover it once again. You know, basically people in the church, Christians in the church, were saying, hey, I think you need a little bit more than Jesus. Jesus is not, you know, enough to be spiritually fulfilled. But if I didn't say it last week, let me clarify. These were people inside the church so these are all people that really believe that Jesus is number one. No, Jesus should be the center of our faith. Jesus is number one. But if you really want to be spiritually fulfilled, you also need two, three, and four. You need more than just Jesus. Do you guys get that? That was, the, that was the main issue that was going on in this, in this church. And so the question is, how did they become like that? You know, how did they come to believe that you needed two, three, and four in addition to the number one Jesus? And it's very simple, and it can happen very simply in our day and age as well. You know, there were these Christians, and they were, they were going to church, but then all of a sudden, they look at their neighbors one day, and you know, these neighbors of theirs, they're like worshiping and offering sacrifices to like Roman gods, you know, Isis, Epaphrodite, whatever, you know, and they thought, oh man, that stuff's weird what they're doing. 
But then they looked at their neighbor and said, oh, even though what they do is a little bit weird, they're like the happiest people I know. They're like happier than the Christians that I go to church with. And so they're like, oh, I wouldn't mind a little bit of that happiness. And maybe it does take a sacrifice or two to a Roman god to make, that ha- to make me happier. So what they do is they'll be like, okay, and they try that little sacrifice, and they're like, oh, maybe it does make me happier. So they come to church, and they're like, hey, you guys should sacrifice too because it'll make you happier. Or maybe they look at their other neighbor, you know, the neighbor, that weirdo neighbor that, that, that plays with like, and hangs out with, with omens and spirits and stuff like that. And the ritual that that guy performs is absolutely weirdo. And so they're, they're a little freaked out, but... Their neighbor is like the best marriage they've ever seen. They're like the most satisfied husband and wife they've ever seen. They're like the nicest people in the world. I don't see Christians like that in my church. Maybe it takes a little bit playing with the spirits for me to get a little bit of what they have in their marriage. And so they're like, all right, let's try a little bit of that. And they try a little bit of that and they're like, oh, I am happier. I am nicer. You know, my marriage is better. So they come to church and they're like, hey, I just discovered something. You guys got to try it out and check it out. Do you see how easy it is? To, to get that going, to have that part of your culture. And so what they started to do is they started combining aspects of this. They started combining practices of that. And soon their faith became this hodgepodge of all of these different beliefs and practices, right? The theological term here, I'm going to give you a theological term. The theological term is called syncretism. Syncretism is the combining of different beliefs and practices and religions. And that exactly, that's what was happening in the Colossian church. And so now once again, I just want to remind you, these, I'm going to call them false teachers. They were believers who believed that Jesus should be number one. They believed that Jesus should be number one, but unfortunately, they also believed that Jesus wasn't enough and you needed two, three, and four. So do you guys understand when I say two, three, and four? Okay, hopefully you do. And that still happens today. And that's what we, we talked about last week. That still happens today. There are people in the church, inside the church right now, that believe that Jesus should be number one. Of course, he's a centerpiece. He should be number one within our faith. But they also say that if you want to experience the other benefits of being a Christian a little bit deeper, then you have to kind of do some other stuff. Right? Don't we hear stuff like that in the church? If you want to experience the benefits of Christianity deeper, you're going to need more than Jesus. You need to engage in spirits. You need to engage in the supernatural. You need to take part in certain rituals or practice that we know are just a little bit outside the boundaries of maybe what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. But they'll say it's okay, though, because it's for the sake of deepening your faith. It's for the sake of you know, making sure that you have a full spiritual experience. Um, But what we need to learn through this message is Paul saying, no, you don't. All you need is Jesus alone. And so he writes this letter so that we can learn how to combat the temptation to syncretize our faith as well. But more importantly, I think he writes this letter and, you know, for us too, so that we can deeper our understanding of why Christ is all that we need so that We can realize that he really is all that we need. And when that happens, you won't need two, three, and four. Do you guys get that? That's what this is all about. So this is why Paul writes this letter. And actually within the first address, these first two, you know, verses, a lot of times it's just like, oh, hey, this is who I am. I'm just writing you a letter. Hey, this is Eddie. Dear you guys. That's usually what the beginning of a letter is. But in this particular letter, he actually packs it with a lot of like 
deep stuff. And so I'm gonna, that's why I'm only going to talk about the first two verses with you today. And believe it or not, he shares two fundamental truths that we always need to be reminded of if we want to grow in Christ and be strengthened against any attacks on our faith, even from Christians. And those two truths are these. Number one, we are members of God's family, right? And number two, we are recipients of God's grace. These two truths will not only guard us against those who attack it and who say we need more than Jesus, but it's these two truths that hopefully become the celebration of what Christ did for you every single day of your life, okay? So let's talk about this for a moment. Let's talk about the first one. We are members of God's family, Colossians 1, 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Do you notice how many times in these two verses, Paul makes reference, like family references, references to family relationships? He says, he says, he calls Timothy our brother. He calls the believers the faithful brothers and sisters. And lastly, he calls God our Father. These are huge references to family, right? He's making crystal clear that Jesus Christ died to make us all a part of God's family with God as our Father, right? And why is that important? It's important for two reasons. Because number one, it changes our identity. And number two, being a part of God's family changes our allegiance. And these are, this is what makes Christianity Christianity. This is what makes Christ Christ, hopefully, to our lives. Number one, it changes our identity. You know, once again, Paul's never been to the church in Colossae. He's probably never met most of the people there. And so when he introduces himself in verse 1, you know, a lot of times if you've never met somebody and you introduce yourself for the first time, you know, you kind of talk about who you are, what you're all about. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm 28 years old and I work here or whatever. You know, and you kind of introduce yourself. But how does Paul introduce himself here in, Paul, in verse 1? He simply says this. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ by the will of God. And that's really unique. Because what's he saying when he says that? He's saying that after he met Jesus, the way he views himself completely changed. You know, in different passages, we know that Paul was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He graduated top of his class at Jewish school. He was like the smartest of the smartest. He accomplished so much. He was like a huge guy. But he doesn't mention any of those things. He just says, look, man, this is who I am. I'm just an apostle of Christ. By the will of God. The way I view myself completely changed the moment I met Jesus. How did it change? He no longer views himself as anything related to the world. Do you notice that he never points out any of his worldly identities in this, right? He doesn't mention his occupation. He doesn't mention what high school he went to. He doesn't mention any of his accomplishments. There's absolutely no reference to his YouTube channel. Nothing. You know, he doesn't mention any of these things. Why? Because he now only sees himself as God sees him. A child of God that has the privilege to declare how awesome his son Jesus is. That's it. That's the way he views himself. Isn't that amazing? That's why he introduces Timothy as a brother. That's why he calls them brothers and sisters, right? Because that's who they are. Paul chooses to see them through what Christ accomplished upon the cross for them to become a part of God's family. And you know what people of the same family do? People of the same family always do the same thing. You know what it is? They follow their father. I don't know if your family is like this. Most Asian families are like this. Whatever the dad says goes, 
My family was exactly like that. Whatever my dad said, that's what went. Whatever culture he set, whatever rules, whatever you know, environment he created, that's what we all adapted to. And that's exactly what God has called us to as well. But the question is, what is the culture of God that he wants to set? What are the desires of God? And verse 2 tells us very clearly, it says that he wants us to be holy and faithful. But the key phrase that actually encapsulates all that God wants from us are found in the words, actually. It's a very theological term in verse 2, in Christ. Right At the end of that first sentence, it says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ. And those two words actually tell the whole story. You see, it's a very historical thing. When people back in Paul's day heard that phrase, those two words, in Christ, that phrase, in Christ, it meant something really huge. It literally was a phrase that said, oh, I see, you're in Christ. You're going to call yourself in Christ? Because that was huge. Because people who called themselves in Christ were declaring something very, very clear. What they were saying was, Yes, I am in Christ, which means that whoever I was before Jesus doesn't count anymore. That guy's gone. Now, all I am and the only way I see myself as is what Christ accomplished for me. You know how big that was to, to Christians back then? You know, when they did ar archaeological digs and they found, you know, the, through the Roman ruins, you know, they, they would find cemeteries. And they would find cemeteries of Christians that were part of Roman churches. And what was really bizarre was they would see the tombstones, because they still had tombstones back then. And what do we write on our tombstones? We write our names, what, when we were born, when we died, stuff like that, right? They had the born and dead thing, but instead of names, you know what they had? In Christ. That's all that was written on the tombstones. And it's not because they, they thought it was the cool thing to do, but it's it, it documented. They thought, it doesn't matter what my name even was. The moment I met Christ, Christ became my everything. And it was my privilege to give up all things, even my earthly identity, to identify myself with my Savior. And that's who I just want to be known as for eternity. That's how big it was for them to be in Christ. Isn't that amazing? What does it mean for you today? To be a Christian, to be in Christ. Does it mean anything for us? Does it move your heart? Does it make you feel proud? You know? Has it completely changed your identity? Do you see yourself every single morning when you wake up and look in the mirror? You're like, hey, I am a child of the Most High God. What an honor. What a privilege. And I get to declare how awesome my Savior is today. This is what it means to be in Christ? Or do we still operate, when we look in the mirror, mainly in, our, in what we see through our earthly eyes? Or do we really see ourselves the way God sees us? You know, children of the Most High, ambassadors of the kingdom, right? Royal priesthood. All because we are in Christ. You know, the issue of identity, the issue of identity really is a huge one, I think, for Christians in the church today. I mean, is what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, is that so compelling that it causes us to completely reorient how we see ourselves or operate our lives? If it doesn't. If it doesn't. That's when we find ourselves searching for more. That's when we can easily come to the conclusion that, yeah, you're right, maybe I do need two, three, and four. Maybe one isn't 
enough. That's not Christ's fault. That's not Christ's issue. It's the fact that we're not grounding ourselves and enjoying Christ and understanding exactly what he accomplished for us. Do you see that? And that leads us to conclude that maybe we need two, three, and four. God saved us in Christ. God made us a member of his family so that the way we see ourselves and operate would be radically oriented towards Christ alone. And when we do, that's when we can operate in Christ confidently and thankfully every single day. Can I give you an example? Here's a very practical example of how that kind of works out. One time, many years ago, I was asked to preach at this conference, this big conference, and I immediately declined. I said, no, I don't want to do it. And my friends were like, hey, dude, why are you saying no? And I, I just said, you know, I'll be very frank with you, friends. Uh, this one friend, I said, hey, you know, honestly, I'm just not really doing well with Jesus today. I'm, my walk with him is not very healthy. And in all honesty, I feel insecure about preaching. And I feel like, you know, it's, I'll just do a terrible job. So people, like, people who aren't doing good with Jesus shouldn't be up there preaching, right? Um, I'm not going to share exactly what my Christian friend said, because well, the way mates talk to each other is not so, in way, you know, we talk in ways that maybe you shouldn't share on the pulpit, right? But, you know, but this is essentially what he said to me. He said, oh, wow, really, Eddie? He said this. He said, Eddie, you know, I didn't realize that your sins right now that you're sinning right now, I, I didn't realize those sins were actually more powerful than what Christ died and resurrected for. I didn't realize that. Oh, but I guess you're teaching me something new. You know? Oh, I didn't realize that what Jesus accomplished on the cross can be powerful to save us and to forgive us of all of our sins in one moment. But if we don't feel like that the next, I guess it's, not, it's powerless, isn't it? Oh, I guess you're teaching me that, aren't you? All right? I never realized that God sent his son to die on the cross so that we could feel insecure about our faith every single day, depending upon how we feel about ourselves. I never realized that Jesus died so that you could be the center of the gospel. Oh my gosh, I'm, I didn't realize that. What was he saying? He was saying that I was so focused upon myself that I had truly lost sight of who Christ had won me to be. A fully forgiven a fully righteous son of the Most High God that he pursued so that I could be his forever, to live in forgiveness, to live in righteousness, to live in his holiness with joy and thanksgiving every single day because I'm his, you know? And none of that stuff is dependent upon my performance. None of that is dependent upon my track record. None of that is dependent upon how I view myself. I need to start seeing who I was through the lens of the cross rather than how I wanted to see myself every single day. People who are grounded in their identity in Christ know that they're sinners. But their sin doesn't compare to what Christ accomplished for them. So they choose to look at the cross. They choose to look at, at the gospel of grace, which tells them that they're forgiven, even though they sinned. They choose to look at the cross, which tells them the gospel of grace that tells us that they're fully righteous, not because of their performance, but because of what Christ accomplished for them upon the cross 2,000 years ago. So they choose to trust in that rather than what they just did 10 minutes ago. 
This is what it means to be a child of God. You know, fully forgiven, fully righteous, so that we can operate in his joy and goodness. And when we realize that, that's all that we need. We never need to be in search for anything more. Whenever we lose sight of Christ and the cross, we lose sight of who we truly are. But we are in Christ. We are God's children. We are part of God's family. And we were saved to radically live with him in the center, not ourselves. Which, read, which leads me to the second point about being a member of God's family. It changes our allegiance. It's meant to. If you look at this in verse 2, it says that we are holy. There's this word holy, right? And this word holy actually has very significant Old Testament roots. If you read any passage about God addressing his people Israel, he always calls them his holy nation, his holy people. It's a very affectionate term. And it actually has two characteristics about this word. It's a, it means possession, but it also means character, right? What it's saying when, it's, when he calls us his holy people, he's telling us that we now belong to God. What Christ accomplished for us upon the cross now makes us his. We are his children. We are his sheep, right? And that's exactly what he's, he's claiming over us. The word faithful also in verse 2 actually means steadfast under pressure, meaning that no, no matter what anyone tells you, we were saved to remain steadfast in Christ alone, in our allegiance to Christ alone. We are to operate our lives as his, and our allegiance is now only to him. Right? Allegiance. One of the worst moments in male friendships, and maybe you women, I don't know if you experience this too, but males experience this as they grow. One of the worst moments in a male, a close male friendship is uh, also one of the most beautiful. It's the moment when you realize that your best friend's primary allegiance is no longer to you as his best friend, but is now to his wife. Right? And it's a very disturbing but beautiful process. You know, and it starts when uh, they start dating and they actually fall in love with a girl. You know? it, and all of a sudden you're talking about whatever. You're talking about sports. You're talking about whatever. But then all of a sudden your, your best friend will throw in you know, just, you know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but Linda says that. And you're like, you know, who cares what your girlfriend says? Why are you talking about your girlfriend? You know, we're talking about this. And then all of a sudden, uh, it moves on from there. And, you know, a few weeks later, it's like, oh, no, 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 we can't. Because, because Linda always says that. And you're like, who cares what Linda said, you know? And then, and then all of a sudden, one day you realize, oh, Wednesday, next Wednesday? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, actually, you know, uh, uh, let me call Linda and see if she'll allow me to. And you're like, what? That's your girlfriend, you know? And then you get all angry. It's absolutely annoying when you're dating somebody. Maybe if you're, if you're a male, you kind of understand as you grow up, you'll see. Um, oh, I'm not going to do that to my best friend. Yeah, you will. Anyway, the thing is, when they're married, the thing is, it's absolutely annoying when they're dating, but it's absolutely beautiful when they're married. It sucks as a guy friend to a guy friend, but it's absolutely beautiful. Why? Because making a commitment to become part of a family must change your allegiance. Do you understand that? 
Making a commitment to be a part of a family must change your allegiance. That's the only way a family can be a family. As a matter of fact, I think that's the only reason why we call a family a family. It's when there's a mutual allegiance to each other and we know that this is number one. Family must come first. And so the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ to be a part of God's family, we make a commitment to put God's family first. Do you see that? That is what is happening when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are his. And that's just not about possession. The word holy also indicates character. We are now to be, uh, to be aligned or to uh, pledge our allegiance to the character of God as well. Not just being aligned. Uh, what's the word? <laughs> We're not just now... Faithful to being a part of his family, but we now are faithful in committing ourselves to, to characterize his family, to be faithful to the character of his family, which is also the character of our God, which is holy. You know, I love it when people come up to me and tell me that my kids look like me. You know, they look totally different in my eyes, but they, everyone says they look like me, and I get so proud and I'm so happy. You know, I love it when they mimic the things that I do and my, the phrases that I say because I think I'm cool. And so when they say it, I think they're cool. You know, but then all of a sudden there would be moments, there was a one moment a few weeks ago where I saw them arguing and they started to use very destructive language to each other. And I got angry. But the reason why I got angry was because I realized that they learned that from me. You know, and so there's good and bad. And it sucks because I am a sinner. And they'll get those things from me as well. But what if? What if I was a perfectly good father? What if I was a perfectly holy father and they started to imitate those things from me? Wouldn't that be pretty awesome? It would. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. You know, to live our lives reflecting the character of God and to want to do that might be the best form of worship that we ever do with our lives. Why? Because whenever we choose against sin and whenever we choose to uh, live and pattern our lives after his holiness, no matter what it means to us and no matter how we feel about it, what we're really declaring more than anything else to God especially is, hey, God, I love being a part of your family. And it costs, yeah, but you know, it's totally worth it because you're worth it. That's what we're declaring. And that might be the greatest worship we ever do with our lives on a day-to-day basis. Christ died so that we, we could become children of God, members of God's family. And that carries with it an identity that completely transforms how we look at ourselves and an allegiance that completely changes who we live for. And when we operate in those family values, it not only generates a heart of worship, but it guards us from false teachers that might tell us otherwise about our faith or about our God that we follow. To be a Christian is not just about being saved. It isn't. It's about being a part of God's family. It's about being God's, right? And just like these roaming Christians, I really hope that becomes everything to you. It's not just something that you identify yourself with, but that becomes who you are and what you're proud of and what you're passionate about to live out because he's that passionate about you. Secondly, we're not only... Uh, members of God's family, but we are all recipients of God's grace. If you notice in verse 2, uh, it actually begins with an address, right? He's addressing this letter to this, these holy and faithful people, but then it ends with a message. And what's that message? He says this, grace and peace to you from who? God our 
Father, right? What is it saying? And then he, what is the message is he saying? He said, God says that he wants his people to have grace and peace. We'll go over what grace means in one second. But what does it mean to have peace? Now, this word, particular word peace is, a, once again, an Old Testament word. It actually means spiritual and physical uh, completeness or fullness, which means you don't need anything else if you're complete, right? Fullness, completeness, spiritually, physically, and in every way. There's a Hebrew word called shalom, and that's exactly what it, it, it embodies and it embraces. That's what he's saying he wants us to have. But why does God want this for us? And here's the answer. The answer is because the key to remaining holy and faithful, the key to being spiritually and physically complete and full within our lives, the key to having a heart that's aligned to Christ and completely satisfied in Christ alone is to have a life that is saturated in grace. A life that is saturated in the grace of God. But what does that mean to be saturated in the grace of God? Do you guys know what the grace of God is? It's very simple. The grace of God is this undeserved gift that God had given us. It means living your life knowing with this active awareness every single day that you live on undeserved time. You know, every single day that you wake up, you need to realize that you were just a human being that had completely offended God with your sins. And because of that, you deserve to rot in eternity in hell forever right? To ride in hell for an eternity. That's what we deserve because we sin before this holy God. But God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty of those sins, to forgive us and to wipe that slate clean. Did we deserve that? No, we didn't. But not only that, but then he blessed us and covered us with his righteousness so that we can actually have a relationship with God for an eternity. People who are destined to, for hell and to burn in eternity forever, now because of the grace of Jesus Christ, the undeserved gift that God gave us through Jesus, now can have an eternal relationship with God. This is the grace of God. Jesus Christ did all that, and that's the undeserved grace that we were given. And it's only by being saturated in that grace every single day can you truly have shalom, completeness, fullness, not wanting anything else, not knowing that you don't need anything else because we have Christ, right? The reason why Christians sometimes feel like they have to search for more, to search for more in our lives, is because we don't have true peace from God. If there ever comes a time in your life where you're just like, you want to know something? Yeah, I know I'm a Christian, but you know, I just want more. You know, I don't know if Jesus really is that enough. I want more. I want more experiences. I want this. I want that. I want this. And you're always asking for it. What that's telling us is that what Christ did for you ultimately is not enough. It's harsh truth, but it's true right? We might know the truth. We might know exactly what God did for us, what Christ did for us upon the cross, but we don't actually have that active spiritual completeness in Christ. If we did, we wouldn't be searching for more. So what we do, we look for other things to kind of supplement our spiritual journey or maybe even to satisfy our earthly curiosities about what's going on there, what's going on there, and that's what we do. And when we do that, what we're really saying is that Christ really isn't enough. For us. So, so what's the answer then? Let me begin, I'll tell you, but let me begin by telling you what the answer isn't, right? The answer is not seeking more things from God. 
The answer is not seeking other religions or other you know, religious experiences. The answer, just like this verse teaches us, is to dig yourself deeper into grace. To dig yourself deeper into the story of Jesus Christ. What are you, what are you saying? Are you saying I'm, you know, I'm supposed to present the gospel to myself over and over again? And then the answer is yes. And I'm going to share that in a second. Right? Dig yourself. It's because you don't really, you're not grounded in that story. You're not grounded in who he is. That's why you're not satisfied. That's why you're not complete. That's what you need to do here. Right? And what Christ did for you, you know, because here we go. If you are not completely satisfied with the magnitude of how amazing it is that the Almighty God would send his son to die for your sins and to love you so he could spend an eternity with you forever, then no playing with the spirits or the supernatural is going to do it for you. If that alone doesn't do it for you, nothing else is going to do it for you. Okay? Think about it. Even in the earthly world, everyone in the world, all, the bottom line is we're all searching for peace. We're all searching for that, that zen or whatever you, know, you call it. We, we're all searching for it. We're all searching for that peace. But the problem is that we're all flawed. We're all sinners. So sinners, what do we do? Sinners seek out that perfect peace in what? Sin, a sin-ridden world. We seek out peace in sin-ridden people, which basically just tells us that we're never going to find that absolute peace in people, in the things of this world, right? And even if we were able to achieve it for ourselves, there's no way that we would be satisfied by it. Why? Because we're sinners. What makes us happy today will... Won't make us happy tomorrow. That's how we are. We'll never be able to perfectly enjoy something perfect because we're sinners. And we'll always be in search for more. Only, which teaches us what? That only a perfectly holy God can give us perfectly satisfying peace. Only God can give us true shalom, physical, spiritual completeness. It can only come from him and not from man. And God gave all that to us through his son, Jesus. Everything. And this is what we're going to learn in Colossians. Everything that God is was put in his son and given to us through his son. And that is why what Christians need the most each and every single day is a heart that is saturated in the grace of God so that we can live each and every single day thankful, complete, and confident in the peace that Christ accomplished for us. If you are a Christian here today, you have it. Okay? If you are a Christian here today, you have it. You are a recipient of God's grace. You are. If you're like, oh, Eddie, I don't feel that way, then you know what the problem is? The problem is that you've allowed that grace to grow cold in your life. You're a recipient of the grace, but you've replaced it with idols. You've replaced it with other things. You've replaced it with things that you started to care more about. When God created you and saved you so that you could make that central. You know, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not angry at anybody. Or I'm not judging anybody because I'm like that too. I'm human. So you know what I do? Whenever I find myself cold, even cold to Jesus, I literally, block, I just say, okay, time out. My whole life, I put everything on hold. And I sit there, or wherever I am, I stand there. And I literally just start sharing the gospel to myself. Eddie, you are a sinner. You deserve to go to hell. You deserve to burn for eternity because you offended your God. The whole the wrath of God 
you deserve upon you for eternity. But God. But God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus, you know, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And so now, not only did he forgive you and, and save you from the penalty of sin, but he gave you his righteousness when he died upon the cross. He exchanged your sinfulness for his righteousness so that you could now have a relationship with the eternal father for eternity. And if the first time doesn't change my heart, I say it again. If the tenth time doesn't change my heart, I say it again. If the fiftieth time doesn't change my heart, I say it again. Why? Repeating the gospel to yourself like a mantra doesn't change your heart. But anchoring yourself in truth, the, the fundamental truths of eternity, that's the only thing that can change your heart. And, the, and as I... As I share those things to myself over and over again, I'm praying the whole time, God, make this alive in me. Make me actually value this. Help me. Show me the things that I've replaced. You know, and it's this process. It's this journey of realizing what made my heart so cold towards these things. But it really is more than that. It's appreciating and really connecting with those truths so that my heart can be alive in Christ, so that the affections can once again be made alive because of what God has done, so that everything that happens within my life can now be seen in light of that simple story that we got so used to. But that's the only story that can bring you back. And that is the only story that can truly put your life on the right track to living for eternity. And that is the only story that can guard your heart from someone telling you you need two, three, and four. We need to learn ourselves to teach ourselves how to be grounded in that gospel. And that process of repentance that comes afterwards, the process of recognizing all the things that I replaced Jesus with, that process of truly realizing how much I need Jesus again, that's what positions me to fall in love with Jesus and to love him and be thankful for everything that he is and to then to really want to give my life to him in a way, in the way that he deserves. If, you're, if your heart is cold and numb, Saturate yourself in the gospel of grace until Christ becomes everything to you. I just want to address other people in our church today. I think there are many people in the church who know all the right things about Jesus, but in the end may not have real faith. There are people who have gone to church for a long time, but don't actually have true satisfying peace in Christ Alone. Maybe there's some of you, I bet there are some of you in this room that are like that. And I'm here to say, it's okay. Maybe all these years you've been at church, you've been afraid to admit it to people. You know, oh yeah, and you just agree, you kind of go with the flow. Maybe you've been afraid to admit it to people that I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm really truly, 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 like truly 100% satisfied in Christ. Maybe you've been afraid to even admit it to yourself that you're afraid that you don't believe, or maybe that you don't, you're not completely satisfied. But can I tell you one thing? If there's one person that's not afraid to hear it, you know who that is? It's God. God knows where you are. God knows who you are in your journey. And if there's anything that he truly wants from you, it's, it's an honest conversation, you know? Can I tell you one thing that might encourage you? You're here. 
that, that tells me everything, you know? It doesn't matter what you think of yourself or how you assess your, where you are spiritually in your life. The fact that you rock up to church on 1.30 on a Sunday, that's not normal. That's God working in your life. That tells me that he's doing something in your heart and in your mind or something enough for you to rock up here, which tells me he's working. And so can I just ask you to just be honest with him? You know, there's this passage in Scripture where there was this man who had this, like, sick son. And the thing is, you know, he was confronted because he knew that Jesus Christ could heal his kid, but Jesus was like, I don't think you believe that I do. He's like, I know, but I know you can, but, like, can you just help me really, really believe that you can? And I thought that was, like, the most honest prayer that you're ever going to find in the Bible. Because he was telling the Son of God that he needed help to believe. That was, like, the most honest prayer. And, that's, and, and, when, and, and I'm convinced that when, when that man prayed that prayer, if there was one person that was happy, it was God. Finally, I got an honest thing from this guy. He finally honestly shared his heart with me. Finally, we had an honest exchange. Isn't that what we said prayer was? And it was beautiful. God wants your honesty. He wants an honest walk with you. Yes, you might not be quite there yet in your total belief in Jesus, but that's okay. And if today's not enough and today's message was not enough for you to surrender your life to Jesus, can I just ask you to do one thing? Can I ask you to just continue to pursue Jesus? This is normal. This is the normal journey of faith. You not knowing 100%, you not believing 100%, you not being utterly convinced, you know, like this, it's okay. That's a normal part of the journey. But can I ask you just to continue to pursue him? You know, to continue to ask him to show himself to you? so that you can be convinced. A lot of normal people, when they go to church, they want to gather all the information. They want to be utterly convinced that this is the right decision for my faith for eternity. So that's what they do. And that's part of the journey too. And that's awesome. But can I tell you a truth, a real truth of truth? I don't know anybody who put their faith in Jesus Christ that had all the information. And because of the information, actually gave their faith to Jesus Christ. They gathered the information, but there comes a point in their life where they're just confronted with the decision. So is that enough? And they realize he is enough, and they become Christians. So until then, because it will happen, can I ask you to just keep on coming, keep on seeking, maybe join a CG, ask your questions there. Don't be afraid. I don't think any of our leaders are afraid to hear questions like that. Continue to pursue Christ until you find him. Because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that if you truly seek him with your heart, you're going to find him. And I believe that God will do that in your life. I pray that like there's no tomorrow that that happens in your life. So let's do that. All of us want peace, but it can only be found in God's grace in Christ alone. And when we all have it in Christ, we'll never need two, three, and four. Let's pray. Let's just take one minute. For those of you who are in Christ, let's just celebrate that today. Maybe your heart is a little bit cold. Ask God to make the gospel story break your heart so that you can be thankful for who he is and just make your whole life about how awesome it is to be a part of his family. If you are not yet in Christ, can you just honestly just tell him where you are? He's not afraid to hear it. And just ask him to reveal himself to you so that you could become a child of God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for us upon the cross, to forgive us, to replace our sinfulness with your righteousness, God, that we could, so that we could become your children. May that gospel story resonate deeper and deeper and deeper within our hearts as we go through this book together. Help us to become children that just love being your children. And for those who are not yet your children, God, we are excited for the day that you bring them into your fold. We thank you, God, that you're so good, that you're perfect, that you're loving and holy. And we pray, God, that your goodness and your holiness and your perfection and your righteousness will continually, continually and always reign in our church. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.